Our Father, one of the marks of sin and depravity, as you said in Romans 1, is that we, in our fallenness, do not give you thanks. But in our redemption and in our salvation, we are the thankful ones who look to you as the giver of life and all good things, to the one who has given us the most precious thing, namely your dear Son, who atoned for our sin and rose from the dead, that we might have the very thing we sung about, hearts that are cleansed by faith, cleansed by that regenerating work of your Spirit, cleansed through the death and the resurrection of your Son, in Him secure, in Him safe, in Him made blameless in your presence, and in Him our hope. We trust and we seek to follow all the days of our life. Help us to be marked as a people who are a thankful people. If anybody on this earth should be thankful, it should be Christians. Help us now as we open up your word to be prepared to come to the table as we look at the great truth of our unity in Christ and how we are to live out that unity as your people. We commit this time to you and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a couple of weeks ago, we introduced the idea of spiritual unity, the spiritual unity that we have as the body of Christ, the spiritual unity that we have that God has given us as his people. And we begin by looking at the theology of unity, and we said we're going to break this up into two parts, the theology of unity and then the practice of unity, what that looks like uh, and as the church, as the gathered people of God. Now... I want to begin, however, by giving us a brief reminder of the theology of unity, of re- reintroducing the topic. I left last week actually a little unsure. I, thought, I felt like it was a, a bit confusing and we didn't get as far as I want, and we never get as far as I want actually, but uh, even more so last week. So let me begin by just taking a little bit of time to remind us of what we had covered before and to remind us of those things that John presents to us as the very grounds and nature of our unity as the people of God, and and be thinking even as we go through these things that it is this kind of unity that we share with Christ and with one another uh, that we is pictured and that we celebrate this morning in the Lord's table. The idea of unity, even that longing for unity that resides in the human heart, is built into the very nature and to the very fabric of our humanity. Again, I mentioned that last week. Paul says this, however, in Acts chapter 17, verses 15 through 16. He says this. He, being God, himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So as children of Adam, we share in a unity as coming from the same human couple. In this case, the same man, Adam. We're all part of the human race. However, because of sin, this unity was utilized not to serve and to glorify God, but rather to rebel against Him. And therefore, God broke this unity that we have as His people. And He did so by confusing languages at the Tower of Babel in a way that caused division and spread out man over the face of the earth. Again, by confusing their language. Yet, even still, the sense of unity, the sense of oneness is felt within humanity. 
It is a, a desire that was pursued violently by many world leaders who wanted the power, no doubt, but also had a sense of bringing the world under a single leadership, a unified people under that one leader. We can think of many, many examples Biblically, although again, there would be many to be Nebuchadnezzar, historically, Napoleon, and you think of other figures like that from all over the globe and throughout history. In fact, that idea of oneness is a big part of what's behind even our own modern political push and international push for a one world system, a one world system. And it is, in fact, that very idea that will play into the rise and the reign of the Antichrist in the end of the days. So there is something built into our humanity of oneness, of being united to one another. Because of the fall, it will be used for evil purposes. Now that sense of unity, however, is also a part of our humanity because we are made in the image of God. We share in the image of God. Our unity and diversity is then a reflection of the triune nature of God. God is one God who is in perfect harmony and union and fellowship with himself as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That relationship is the grounds of our relationships, of diversity in unity. And our shared desire to be in relationship with God and with one another. Now the highest human expression of this oneness is shown right in the very opening chapters of Scripture. And it is in that relationship between a husband and a wife. A husband and a wife, male and female, come together in a covenant commitment of love. And are in that union described as one flesh. One flesh. This one flesh relationship is demonstrated both in the physical aspect of male and female and sexual union. It is a oneness of relationship that's demonstrated in that covenant commitment of a shared life together. And it is a oneness that even has a sense of demonstration in the product of that relationship, namely human life that comes from that union. However, there's an even greater expression of this unity that we have or that God has established, and that is in his covenants related to redemption. This was foreshadowed in the nation of Israel. Though they are many people and though they are many nations, they were the one people of God. And interestingly, God even identifies this one people of God as in Exodus 4.22 as his firstborn, my firstborn. This nation that he called out of the land of Egypt. Later, also referring to his deliverance out of the land of Egypt, he will refer to the people of God, the nation of Israel, as my son. My son in Hosea 11.1. The ultimate display, however, of this kind of redemptive union is the church. And that began after the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And there... In a display of this new creation of the one people of God, he gave the gift of tongues with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the curse of Babel was demonstrably reversed as people understood them, others, in their own language. This was the new people of God in the Spirit 
and through the Son. We mentioned also then last week that this reality is described through a variety of metaphors. I'll just mention some of them. The body of Christ, a building, God's household, members of one another, members in one body, living stones built up into a spiritual house, and even the idea of adoption and being brought into the family of God are all ways that God has described this reality of the one people of God in His Son. Now, with all of that said, John takes it down, as we noted last week, to yet even another level and says that our unity as God's people is not just from Adam, it's not just as people of the new covenant who have the Spirit, but it is something else. It is a unity that is established in and patterned after the Son's own eternal relationship with the Father. That is the the nature of our own unity in a reflective way. So a relationship that we participate in through the Son, taking on humanity, uniting Himself with His own creation, by atoning for our sins, by rising from the dead, and by sending the Spirit who would unite us to Himself so that we would share in His life and share in His own relationship, His own eternal relationship with the Father. That is the great glory of the gospel and the great glory of our being reconciled to God through Christ. Through Christ. That we would be the people of God in fellowship with God in the Son. Now we began to look at that and I'll, through the text of John 17 verses 18 through 23, really focusing on verses 20 through 23. Let me read that, briefly review it, and wrap up some things we didn't finish last week, and then we'll move into Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6, where Paul in the book of Ephesians again lays the foundation of the theology of the unity that we have in Christ, but then moves into how we practice that unity as the people of God. Let me read first out of John 17. This is, of course, Christ's high priestly prayer to the Father. The last recorded words of Christ here before he is betrayed and handed over. He says this in verse 18. He says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone... But for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Tremendous words, and there's so many things there and on this topic itself that we won't touch, but I do want to briefly remind you of the main point that we noted from this section of the Lord's Prayer last week, and namely this, and this is what we talked about last week. That Christian unity then is patterned after the Son's unity with the Father, but it is not equal to it in every way. So it's, it's established in, it's patterned after the Son's unity with the Father, but it's not equal to it in every way. And again, just by way of reminder, 
let me note the way that it is different. It is different in this, in that the unity that the Son has with the Father is an eternal and a necessary unity. In other words, it's what he shares with the Father as God, as one who is equal to God, as one who shares in the nature of God, and in fact is God as the Son. In other words, there would be no Father without the Son, no Son without the Father, nor would there be any Spirit. In other words, God is one God, and yet He is three. And so as the Son... Christ shares a unity with the Father that is necessary and that is eternal. He indicates this several ways in the prayer. Uh, Just one in verse 24. He says that they may see my glory which you have given to me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And he said back in verse 5 that it was a glory that he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. That takes us back to the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it is that Word that became flesh. Secondly, His is different because His unity with the Father then includes a shared glory as God. In fact, Jesus said in chapter 5 that He shares in the prerogatives of God in both judgment and the giving of life so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. In other words, there is no honor given to the Father that is not also given to the Son as God. He is the one who receives worship. You'll remember at the very end of John's gospel, that's exactly what he did. When Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and Christ received that worship, because indeed that is the very end to which all of John is pointing to, that they may believe that he is the Son of God. And that believing we might have life in his name, in his person. And so his unity with the Father includes a shared glory as God. Thirdly, it's different because of this. And this is where we spent quite a bit of time last week. I'll just note the point here. His unity with the Father, so the Son's unity with the Father, is necessary to the work of salvation. In other words, there is no salvation from the Father apart from the person and the work of the Son. And so the people that are the redeemed are those who are actually given to the Son by eternal decree from the Father. They are, Jesus said then, my sheep, my sheep who hear my voice, my sheep for whom I lay down my life, my sheep who follow me, and again, those sheep who will honor him even as they honor the Father. In that context, Jesus said then that I and the Father are one. Yes, it includes what they do. They're one in their purpose and their will. But what Jesus is saying there as the Son is something significantly more, which the Jews understand and therefore understood and therefore wanted to stone him. He is one in purpose, but he is also one in glory and nature. And that's demonstrated by the very things that he does and that he shares with the Father. So in that way, Jesus' unity with the Father is distinct. And it's, it's important to note that because these statements outside of clarification can become misunderstood and, and occasionally have been throughout the history of the church. Indeed, he says in John that we share a unity that he shares with the Father. So in what way then is it the same? Our unity then is the same in this way. One, it is grounded in the spiritual reality of union with Christ by the Spirit. 
And within that unity, we share the spiritual reality of shared life with Christ. So that we, as the people of God, participate in the Son's own relationship and fellowship with the Father. That's why Jesus could say later in the prayer, Father, you love them even as you loved me. You loved them even as you loved me. That's why he could say that we as the church will share in his own glory. There his glory not only as son but as redeemer. Which is in fact an added glory that he took on after the incarnation and after the accomplishment of redemption. But we have this shared fellowship with the Father. Now we noted this before in John 17 in verse 21. And it's in this language of reciprocal of relationship. This language of relationship. And he says this in verse 21. uh, That they all may be one, even as, or just as, you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then he says in verse 23, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So our unity is grounded in spiritual reality. That Jesus himself presents in terms of relationship, the shared, deep, intimate fellowship with God. A kind of fellowship that the Son has shared with the Father from all eternity. A second way that our unity is similar is this. It involves our obedience to and shared mission with Christ to the world. Jesus showed his unity to the Father in that he did exactly what the Father said. In every way, his life was a demonstration of his perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And that perfect obedience included his mission to the world. So he says there in verse 18 in John 17, As you sent me, so this is Jesus to the Father, the Son to the Father... As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. In other words, the church in her unity is an extension of Christ's own ministry to the world. And in that extension of Christ's ministry to the world, we also display a common faith and obedience to Christ as God. And therefore, even an obedience to the Father. By obeying the Son. So in that way, our unity reflects Jesus' own unity as Son to the Father, who obeyed Him perfectly and went on His mission to the world. Thirdly and lastly, it's the same in this way. It is established in the truth and mutual love for Christ and one another. And that really brings us now a little bit closer to where we're headed. In fact, I've already read this, but Jesus said that part of the ministry of the Father and part of his own ministry was that those who were given to him would be kept in the name that the Father has given to him. Later he says that they would be kept in my name. That name is associated with the word and the revelation of God that Jesus came to give. Now just hang in there with me. In verse 8 of chapter 17 he says, For the words which you gave me I have given to them... They have received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. And then in verse 11, 
He takes us and he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they all may be one, even as we are one. So in other words, this unity is centered around the truth of God's self-revelation in Christ. A common faith in the truth about Christ. A common faith that then identifies the community of God's people. The, the one people of God. And it is a community of faith that has as its greatest expression love. Love. Jesus said that back in John 13. He said this in the Lord's Supper. The end, you remember, he says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, he takes that same reality and in prayer to the Father, expands it even more. And again, I've already mentioned this. Let me read it again in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. That's his glory as redeemer, not glorious son. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then he says this in verse 26. I have made known your name, your na- or your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The community, the unity, the reality of union with Christ, of being the one people of God, is then demonstrated in our mutual love for one another, as well as our mutual faith in Christ and the truth about Christ revealed. That then is a ground of our unity. So then it has a spiritual reality to it. In other words, it's a unity that God accomplishes and grants to us as a very essential element of salvation. But it's also a unity then that has a visible demonstration. Again, notice what Jesus says. He says, so that, in verse 21, the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, it is a unity that is visible. It's a unity that can be seen. It's a unity that should be demonstrated in the life of God's people. It's a unity that we display before a watching world. And in that display of unity, we bear witness to the reality of the gospel. To the reality of the gospel. As a matter of fact, one rightly said this, that this unity is a demonstration of the truth of the gospel. It has been well said before that the church is the gospel made visible. It's the gospel made visible. Our gathering together, the called out people of God, living in community under the lordship of Christ in obedience to him, is a visible manifestation of the reality of the person of Christ and even the Father's own love for the Son and his love for us as his people. Now that's a lot to chew on, no doubt. But that is a profound reality. It is a profound reality of the church. It is a profound reality of our salvation. And because that is a reality that's so ingrained not only into our humanity, but into the very fabric of our redemption and spiritual life, it is a 
powerful argument for unity among the people of God. For unity among the people of God. Now, this visible unity, and I just mentioned this last week, of the Christian church is a powerful argument that has been employed also wrongly throughout the history of the church. Just a couple of examples we're even bringing into our own times are the Roman Catholic Church, the World Council of Churches, and those who fall into the ecumenical movement. And indeed, that's the very thing that we see even in our own community. That was a huge part of the church's response here in Newtown after Sandy Hook. That all of the churches are gathering together in interfaith movements to join hand essentially as a religious expression of God's people, of God. And we would have a problem with that. We would have a problem with that. Let me begin... One, just with the Roman Catholic Church. Why is that unity not a true unity? And believe me, this is a powerful argument of the church to come back to the one church of God. The evangelicals and Catholics together was essentially in the mind of Rome by their own expression, the church coming back to the true church, the mother church, coming back to the one temple of God. And that in the mind of many was a very powerful argument. However, there are some problems. Let me just mention a few. One is it's built, built on false premise. In other words, that unity that is promoted by the Roman Catholic Church is a commitment to the church and not to Christ and His Word exclusively. In other words, then, it is also built on a false gospel, a false salvation. And it's a false salvation because the mediation of the church has been added to and, in essence, replaced the sole mediation of Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Christ Jesus, in 1 Timothy 2.5. And so they've created a false kind of mediation in which they hold the power of a false kind of unity. And of course, it's empty spiritually. Secondly, then, it's also a myth. The Roman Catholic Church has been riddled with factions throughout her history, even consisting at one point in history of several popes at the same time. Even now there is the Eastern and Western Church. There are many variations within these. And even that unity throughout the history of the Roman Catholic Church at dark periods of her time was maintained not through commitment to the truth, but through violence and death and murder, imprisoning and putting out and destroying those who would dare to oppose the authority and the official teaching of the church, who would be a threat to her. That's not the kind of unity that Jesus is speaking of here. That's the kind of unity that will exist more under the system of the Antichrist, certainly not under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another kind of false expression of that unity, fraught with dangers, is that of the World Council of Churches. This is pulled from their website. What is the World Council of Churches? The World Council of Churches is a fellowship of churches which confesses the Lord Jesus Christ as God and Savior according to the Scriptures and therefore seek to fulfill together their common calling to the glory of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a community of churches on the way to visible unity in one faith and one Eucharistic fellowship expressed in worship and in common life in Christ. It seeks to advance towards this unity as Jesus prayed for his followers so that the world may believe. In other words, it is an effort 
to bring about the very kind of unity that Jesus is praying for here in John 17. Now, an essential problem, however, with that is that though they state in their mission, in their mission statement, that they say in their mission statement that the ultimate end of this kind of unity, this fellowship of churches, is evangelism. That's key to their purpose. However, the problem is is that those who make up its membership do not even agree on such basic things as the nature and authority of Scripture, the meaning of the atonement, and thus the gospel itself. So then what kind of witness? Is that witness then void of the truth as its preeminent display of the gospel, replaced rather by a structural or institutional kind of unity that they bring about? We would say yes. Matter of fact, although commenting on John 17, 21, author D.A. Carson captures this well, the, the problem with that, that kind of unity, is he says it's not the kind of unity, it is a unity that's meant to be observable, but it is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator. In other words, it's not a unity to be gained at the expense of truth and at the expense of the authority of Scripture. In fact, John will make clear, both in his gospel and in his epistles and even in Revelation, that those who do not abide or remain in the truth are not a part of God's people. In fact, they are a part rather of Satan's offspring. Those are strong words, but that's precisely the two options. Whether is either a part of the people of God or not. Uh, Paul said this, you'll well remember, reflecting even what we read this morning in Acts 1-15, when he writes to the Galatian church and he tells them, I'm so surprised that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Notice, their desertion from the pure truth of the gospel was a desertion from Christ himself and therefore no longer among the people of God, the true people of God. And then he confronts their error of those who are bringing in another gospel. Again, that was what we read about this morning in Acts chapter 15, saying circumcision was necessary for salvation. Of those who would compromise the truth, and again, note, it's not merely church tradition, which is sometimes how that language of error is justified. It's their tradition. It's the Catholic tradition. It's the Protestant tradition. No, there are two different gospels that are being proclaimed. And we need to be aware of that. So we don't compromise the gospel for the sake of unity. As a matter of fact, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 6, we are to come out from among them. We are to separate where there is a false gospel. Unity is not, does not trump truth. Now that being said, let me just make one caveat here. And then we'll move forward. Ecumenism is not bad in and of itself. It's not bad in and of itself. It actually is good. In and of itself, it is something right. As a matter of fact, the very statements that we hold as dear and precious, statements of orthodox theology related to the person of Christ and the nature of God and so forth, came from what are known as ecumenical councils. That was the church at large gathered together to make truth statements that defended the teaching of Scripture. And defended the authority of Scripture. So ecumenism is not bad in and of itself. However, it is in terms of what, it is, large, what is largely portrayed as ecumenism today. 
which is to say that, hey, everybody who makes some religious claim to faith is equally accepted as valid as God's people. And therefore should come together and minimize their differences and instead seek to maximize a visible kind of unity. That's exactly, exactly the wrong way to go. It is a unity that Christ has made clear in his prayer that is based on truth. I just want to make one note here in terms of John 17 that emphasizes that. There's, there's obviously a lot. But note just one point. Note what he says actually in verse 17 or in verse 16. He says, They are not of the world. They are not from the world. Even as I am not from the world or of the world... And then he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Truth is the binding reality of our union to Christ and our unity with one another. He says in verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. They're looking both at his atonement but also into the revelation of God through him and about him and to the church. So it is a unity that must be based in the truth about Christ. So he's not talking here primarily about organizational unity, though he is talking about visible unity. Now there's a lot more that could be said on that, but I want to just make one applicational point and then jump to and end with Ephesians 4. How does the unity then that Jesus' prayer address, that Jesus' prayer uh, calls for, how are we to have that and express that kind of unity with local churches and even among ourselves? But let me ask first, how are we to experience that kind of unity with local churches? Well, I think that has already been indicated, but let me just mention it maybe more clearly. It has to begin first with our understanding of what the church is. Is In other words, our doctrine of the church. Is the church merely a gathering of people who have some general common commitment or religious commitment? Or is the church the gathered people who profess the truth about God as it is revealed in Scripture? And that confession of the truth about God itself being the foundation of their unity. So the church, that's why when Luther, because we're in the year of the 500th Reformation, that's why when Luther was excommunicated from the church, when those papal bulls and other documents from the Pope were written telling Luther essentially he's a devil and he's excluded from the church, he could water them up and throw him into the fire. He did not, because he said he wasn't excluded from the church because the Catholic church was not the true church of God. Because they did not have a right gospel. So it is, begins with our understanding of the church. So that we can't have any unity with another church who doesn't hold to and profess the truth about Christ. In other words, that would eliminate most of the churches in our area, wouldn't it? It would eliminate most of the churches in our area, unfortunately and sadly. We simply cannot go to a presidential speech as an interfaith, a part of an interfaith movement, and somehow present that we are of the same nature with those who deny the deity of Christ, the atonement of Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, 
Salvation through his finished work on the cross. Salvation that's evidence and obedience and repentance of life. We simply cannot join hands with them. And we will not. That is a wrong kind of unity. But where there is agreement on the gospel, even though there may not be agreement in all secondary issues or non-salvific issues, we should demonstrate some kind of unity. We should demonstrate a fellowship of the Spirit. We should demonstrate some kind of joining in hands in a common confession about Christ. What that unity looks like is another question. And there are other factors to be considered. What kind of unity, how much unity, where is there disagreement, and so on and so forth. But however one answers those questions, and there are a variety of ways that that could be discussed, I think that we would all agree that what we see commonly in the church, even in our own area with church is, is less than what Christ is praying for here. Right? I think we would all at least agree that even our fellowship with other churches and our participation in ministry and even visible fellowship is not equal to what Christ is praying for here. There is a strong sense of separation, of independence that I think defies the spirit of what he's praying for here and what we should be pursuing. Now, I... I have five minutes. Can we finish Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6 in five minutes? I don't think so. And we want to have time for uh, the Lord's table. But let me at least emphasize this by points of application. And we'll look in then next time. And I hope that was clarifying from what I felt was confusing a little bit last week. But some points of application then. We needed to then as a church really consider and pray... How do we, or how do we become more obedient to the Lord's words here in terms of our fellowship with other churches and with other Christians? We could ask ourselves that on a more individual level. And how do we display that unity with other believers in our workplace, in our families, and in our community? Is there sometimes that spirit of exclusivism that can come up, whether intended to or not, whereas... You know, we've got our church, you've got your church, and then there's not a lot of interaction between. And we would want to just be careful and, and see if that is in our hearts or what ways are we intentionally reaching out to those who also make a profession of faith and we have no reason to not believe is true. And then we also need to say, how can we as a church pray together? And we've mentioned things like this in the past and, and there's been a congenial spirit towards this and an open and generous spirit towards this. But... Really looking at this passage has affected me actually quite a bit, this passage and in Ephesians, and thinking about how in my own leadership and how we as a church need to be better at pursuing this with other churches. We need to be more intentional to somehow demonstrate a visible kind of unity with those who also proclaim a true gospel, even if we don't agree in other areas, and we won't agree in every area. But to lay that before us is something to be thinking about. I lay that before me and I do so publicly is an added amount of accountability for how to pursue that uh, that we would do. But we share a unity. As a matter of fact, this that we remember now in the Lord's table is not something that's happening only here in this church. It's something that's happening in churches, true churches, even throughout our state, even throughout our country, even throughout the world. 
this table is being celebrated. And in as much as it is celebrated by the church, by believing saints in the truth of Christ, it is in itself a visible demonstration that is obediently following the Lord's command himself in which we proclaim our togetherness in Christ, our unity in Christ. We share with every other Christian celebrating this table a unity, a oneness, a singularity of identity and purpose and spiritual reality together, together. We proclaim that we are together trusting in the same Christ, that we are together serving the same Lord, that we are together hoping in the same salvation, that we are together committing ourselves to live not only in righteousness and fellowship with the Lord, but with one another as the people of God. And to walk in love, as Jesus said. By this, our expressions of love, the world will know that we are his disciples. So as we come to the table now, let us pray and think about the implications of this for our life, the wonders of this reality in terms of our relationship with Christ. Let us think in terms of the reality of our life, in terms of the obedience of our life, how we're demonstrating this love for one another, how we could do better, how we need to confess sin, how we may need to go to another person, how we're expressing this to others in our community. Let's review these things about our life and together rejoice in God's saving work to us in Christ. And remember that as we take it, we are proclaiming His death, His resurrection and return. Let me pray and then the men will come forward and hand out the elements. Father, thank You for, for salvation. How can we even begin to fathom all of the wonders that you have accomplished for us in your dear son? And yet you have, and your word proclaims them. To say that you, Father, are in the Son, and our Lord Jesus, that you are in us. And that in some way, in that reality brought about by the Spirit, that we share in your own eternal and present relationship as father and son. We as adopted sons, you as a father and and our Lord, our Redeemer. Help us to meditate on these privileges, to think of their reality and how we live with one another, how we love one another, how we serve one another. And lead us and guide us, our God, as we would seek how we can, as a church, demonstrate this reality even more, even maybe in small ways, but in some way, to show that we, as the people of God, in our common confession, are a people united to you in love and faith, according to the truth. We commit these things to you in your name, Jesus. Amen.